Hello? Hello? It's all around us. So, welcome back after a, oh God, it's been a couple of week, three week hiatus or something. It's been, hell, I don't know. It's, it's summertime. Anyways, Steph is back with me. So, um, <laughs> hi Steph, how are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm over here in uh, California and uh, everything's on fire. Um, but, I was just say, you're in the middle of hell right now. Yeah, basically. Once again, but uh yeah, we were uh, under a red flag. Well, of course, about a week ago, we had huge uh, lightning storms here, and they started, I don't know, like over 350 fires in one night. Um, I watched one. Actually, we were scheduled to have the show uh, the 19th, but um, I was just watching the Hennessy fire, which got into Vacaville and destroyed a bunch of homes, uh, blow up from my deck. At one point, it looked like there was like a mothership flying saucer because the, the smoke cloud from the fire was rising up through another layer of the atmosphere and made us ring um so uh yeah so that's been happening and then we uh had another red flag warning uh over about the last 24 to 36 hours i was um panicking last night trying to figure out what to take you know prep, prep in case we had to evacuate again in case we had more lightning strikes but luckily it didn't happen and they've lifted the red flag warning so we're just there's a ton of smoke here it's really horrible air quality but you know other than that we're not in danger of burning up so that's a plus yeah the picture you sent me it looked like there was a mushroom cloud off in the distance so um yeah is this because of droughts or whatever like this is the time of year where you guys start going through droughts and stuff right or is this this, this how it is well, basically, California has always had, uh, usually it was for many thousands of years, in the fall, you would get these kind of uh, uh, difference in the uh, way the weather patterns work. Normally, you get you have a bunch of cold, really cold water off the coast, and it's always wanting to come in and push that coldness in, inland, right? But then in the fall, usually like September, October, you get, they call Santa Ana winds or Diablo winds. Yeah. And they're coming in from like they get these real hot, overheated, uh, high pressure zones in the in the basin, like in Nevada and stuff. And it just starts pouring over the state, pushing everything out. And you get these like could be 100 mile per hour winds and it's 100 degrees and there's no humidity. So anything that catches on fire, you can have, you know, sparks blowing miles and anything they catch on is going to have a unlimited oxygen. Um, 
And so what's happened is with the changes in the climate that have been happening, we've had more drought, so you have more fuel. And then you also have longer periods of time where you have these uh, Santa Ana conditions. So it's very dangerous. And then this um, last lightning storm was also very unusual because we ended up getting a kind of part of a tropical storm coming through here, which usually would not happen at all. There's people who uh, in the uh, National Weather Service saying, you know, I've been here 30 years. I've never seen anything in my career like that storm. Um, so, yeah, so it's California's always had that time of fire, but now it's just got so crazy, you know, it's just extended and extended. So it, it makes it very difficult to manage. And when you have, you know, hundreds of fires bursting out all at once, it's very difficult for um, firefighting uh uh, you know, to contain it because you're just, everything's on fire all at once. So, huh. Well, I'm sitting here in Michigan. It's like 97 degrees. I do not have central air. Yep. I've got three fans blowing on me right now and I'm pretty yep. much dying. I've got like three liters of water sitting next to me to keep myself hydrated. So anyways, yeah. so where are we going yeah, on this no, episode? This is another show that, well, I guess we both kind of put this one together though. But, um, so what's, what's the plan for this one? We have David Metcalf returning. Which is weird because we're gonna we're gonna wind him up and let him go. Yeah, pretty much. But um, <laughs> like I had him on the show a long time ago. Always wanted to get him back again. Then we got him back, and now I've got him coming back. Like it's only been I think one episode since the last time he was on here. So yeah, just like about a month or something. Yeah, yeah. Since and I've that. barely done any shows because I've just it's I've been too busy because it's summertime. And you would think with the pandemic going on at, that people would be like because I'm kind of an isolationist during all this. I mean, I've had some friends mm -hmm. come over and sit around the fire and stuff with me, but everybody that I've had come over, we're kind of all shut-ins, and like our only time that we leave is to come over here and have fires in my backyard, and that's it. And mm -hmm. like. I'll go yeah. motorcycle riding, but I don't go near people. I don't like going into stores and going shopping. Even the job that I work at, I've got like this plastic barricade that separates me from the public. So yeah. it's like, I, but you would, you would think that I would have more time to put more of this kind of stuff together, but things just happen. Life happens and it's summertime. And it's like, by the time I get done doing everything, I'm like, man, I really don't want to go sit in the house and, and, and prepare for a podcast. I think I'm just going to sit out here and chill for a little while and, and drink a beer. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that sounds, that sounds good. Uh, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a weird, it's, it's a very weird, uh, weird time of history basically is how, how I would sum up. <laughs> it is. And like, you can see it, well, well, now you're starting to see where things are adjusting as best as they can to get life back to normal. You know, the only, like we don't have movie theaters open here yet. They're slated to open pretty soon, but I'm damn near not going near one. Like, you know, you've got restaurants yeah. that are opening, but they're doing different. Like some people are having outside eating and stuff like that. I'm still in the go in and get carry out phase. I'm not really in a, I'm not really in a hurry to sit down and eat in a restaurant. Um, yeah. you know, and, um, but you're seeing like society try to adjust to do what it can to compensate until some kind of a vaccine or something like that comes out. I have a feeling that once this vaccine hits or whatever, because it's it's going to happen, we're going to get, there's like, I think, what, 700 different vaccines in the works or something like that. I remember some really high number. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe it's 100. I don't remember. It's a high number. Um, and they're, they're 
everybody that I've talked to that I talked to that deals with this kind of stuff, everybody's like, yes, we are going to find something. It's just a matter of what is going to hit first and how well it's going to work. Of course, you're going to have the people, the anti-vaxxers, I'm not taking that, whatever, fine. I'm getting a vaccine. I don't care what the hell it does. If it gives me an extra arm, fine, because if I catch COVID, I will die. <laughs> I have a heart condition, all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, no, the same here. No, this is, no, I got to say, I mean, I know there's a lot of people that discount this and, you know, we, we want to keep it light. Um, yeah. For uh, I, although actually, if, if I, I met Kef and I were talking behind the scenes about a lot of necromancy and binding spirits and all, maybe it'll get a little dark. But um, yeah, this is basically I've had uh, very bad problems with asthma since I was young, and this is like my worst case scenario having this type of pandemic, and then you know sitting here breathing all this smoke. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll be thrilled to make it through this year, and I'm not exaggerating, you know. So, yeah, I'm going to be so far, uh, out on that side of the country here coming up in the next week or whenever. So I'm going to be dealing with it myself. I've got friends that are out there like, yeah, if you're coming out here, bring asthma meds, bring, you know, basically bring a Darth Vader respirator suit so you don't die. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. And you want N95 mask is what you want for the smoke. Yeah, so. that's not going to happen. I'm, I'm, I've got yep. like a bunch of face scar, like things, garters that you pull over your neck and pull over your face and stuff. I, I. No, masks do give me a hard time breathing, but I will wear one. I'm not going to be one of those guys. It's like, I got a breathing condition. I can't wear a mask. No, I'm not going to do that. It's like, okay. Oh, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm going to suck this up and do the best I can with it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be the guy who bitches and makes it uncomfortable for everybody else. Like, you know, but, um, anyways, well, let's, um, let's jump into this and, uh, talk to, uh, Metcalf here about folk magic, which is something that we very lightly tapped on last time he was here. And we said, yeah, we need to do this. And I was really not expecting him to come back this quickly because it took me five, six years between the last visit to get him back on. And you're like, nah, we're going to do this. Aren't we, Dave? And Dave's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. So uh, let's do this. Hopefully Dave is not going to be talking to us in the middle of a wind tunnel of bees and bugs or whatever the hell he was standing in last time. when. Well, hopefully all those the uh, cicadas are hopefully done uh, hooking up for NASA, yeah. but we'll find out. Yeah, we'll see. All right, so here we go. Let's uh, let's get this going here. So, uh, Dave. I was talking before the show uh, with Stephanie that if it took me, I got you, I had you on here before, then it took you another like six or seven years or five years, however long it took to get you back. And I was not really expecting to have you back this quickly, which is great because I love having you here. You're one one of my most fun people to talk to because I follow all your articles and everything. And you're all, always a treasure trove to have on here. So um, Steph was like, hey, let's do a show on folk magic. And pretty much any time Stephanie says, let's do a show on this, I go, okay. So uh, <laughs> here you are, and we're going to try to cover the topic of folk magic. Now, folk magic is expansive and very large. It has a large blanket that goes over top of it. So let's just start with the basics. If you want to reintroduce yourself and explain to people who haven't heard who you are before, and then I guess from sure. there we'll just go into um, like how you how you got interested in folk magic, and we'll just take it from there. I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, I uh, am a uh, what <laughs> stuff. What did you what did you <laughs> call me on the the, uh, oh, the, the the sheriff of paranormal phenomenology? Yeah, there you go. So that's that's my background. Um. Well, I was actually going to try and uh, I was thinking I really was going to call you the Guy Fieri of sex magic, but I lost my nerve. Wow. <laughs> Wow, let's go to Flavortown. So, yeah, so, either, <laughs> so either 
Either one of those. That's my that's my background. Um, I, I do. Uh, the sheriff of Flavortown. Yeah, I'm the sheriff of Flavortown. Magic magical flavors abound. Um, the uh, yeah. No, the visuals so, are uh, in my head right now. Yeah, I know. I'm now. See, that's the problem. When somebody says something like that, I visualize it like. That's, that's one of the reasons, like when, like when I when I do have an edible marijuana thing, and somebody's sitting around, they say something to me, I start cracking up because I envision what people say often. So now I've got like your face, the guy for your face is plastered over your face, um, which means you're probably the guy that sings that "Hey Now You're a Rockstar" song as well. But because um, <laughs> they look alike, except for you're wearing magical robes and you're doing this sex thing or whatever. I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm completely side railing all of this. So let's just go ahead and continue on with your description of sex, sex magic, and Guy Ferreira. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I I write about all this weird stuff, so that gives me the uh, the expertise, and I have some uh, academic um, papers published, and uh, have worked. For a long time with Andrew Chestnut on um, researching Santa Muerta, uh, the Saint Death tradition. Um, I've done some work with Diana Pasolka on um, digital media studies kind of stuff and how beliefs are created through our contemporary media. And uh, my background is actually uh, in cognitive philosophy and comparative religions, um, specifically folk magic, actually. I had... Um, it's what I studied in college. So um, this particular topic is close to my heart. Um, yeah, just the, uh, the kind of different belief systems uh, and influences that have influenced folks' magical religious practices around the world. Um, I've been looking at this kind of stuff for, for years since I was a kid, but, um, you know, seriously since college and afterwards. So, so I guess we should start with most people jump into the idea that folk magic is a derivative of voodoo, uh, therefore uh, mutating into hoodoo, but the two are not the same. The other problem with that is, is that you have traditions all over the world that did not spring from voodoo. You have Nordic traditions. You have uh, Yugoslavian traditions. Um, so what would be a good starting point definition for what folk magic actually is, and how does it differ from other magical practices? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, folk magic is the, uh, you know, one, I guess you start with what is magic, right? So it's the, the kind of the practices that people have done throughout the existence of humanity to um, kind of, you know, Crowley's definition of uh, affecting change in the world through will, you know, but um, magic is, you know, it's this communication with, with kind of the other, you know, how do you, how do you tap into that, that other side and kind of uh, work with that to create change. Um, folk magic you know, it's the, the magical practices that are done by the people, you know, it's, it's not a, it's kind of, it's, it's a strange, you know, in that, in what you're pointing out, it's, it's an interesting kind of, uh, question because, you know, uh, we look at, uh, Vodun or, or voodoo practice, um, as being folk magic, but, you know, in Haiti and, um, you know, Vodun in East Africa, 
it's actually high magic. It's the magic of, uh, you know, the, the community and it's the, and it's not even magic really. It's, it's actually a religious practice. Yeah. Whereas hoodoo is not a spirit. Hoodoo is not actually a religious belief. That is just a set of practices to affect magic. Whereas voodoo itself is an actual religious belief and yeah. the magic that comes from voodoo is kind of a side effect on it. Is that my, am I saying that correctly? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the effects that you would get through contacting the Loa, the spirits, um, you know, and, and the, and those powers that are, are granted, it would be the same kind of thing as prayer, right? Where you have Christians pray for healing and, you know, you, you talk to the Loa and the Loa may heal, you know, it may, or it may harm and that kind of thing. And that in, in hoodoo traditions, you know, the difference between hoodoo and uh, Vodun and voodoo, uh, hoodoo traditions actually come from a different part of Africa in large part. They're actually more Congolese, uh, um, that, those traditions that come from the, the Congo region, um, which, which is a totally different region of Africa. Let me um, ask you to clarify one thing. You've brought up a term. Now, we're familiar. Now, all three of us are more or less familiar with this term, but to the layman on the outside – you brought up this term of high magic. Um, mm-hmm. Somebody on the outside that's looking in on this may not just know that they, they see things as magic as X, Y, or Z. Uh, so if you could elaborate a little bit on what high magic is and how that relates to this, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, just a, and all these, these kind of terms and stuff, it gets really like, <laughs> once you start to look at the global, it gets muddy fast. That, like, <laughs> Yeah, you get real muddy real quick. So, you know, just kind of like a fast and loose uh, terminology that we're using here. But um, high magic would be uh, more than that, you know, kind of a class differentiator um, where, you know, if you think of like uh, you'd mentioned Enochian magic uh, before the show and Enochian would be high magic in the sense that, um, you know, originally as it's derived from John Dee's workings, John Dee was a court astrologer and astronomer for uh, the Queen of England, right? And he was also one of the most noted mathematicians in the world at the time. So the kind of workings that he was doing, um, you know, were deeply embedded in the scientific world and they were deeply embedded in the upper class you know, conceptions of empire and conceptions of the ways that work. And one of the interesting things you find with magic traditions the world over is that quite often the invisible world that um, is being interacted with uh, is in some ways a mirror of the practitioner's concepts of the world. So in China, where you have, um, you know, uh, Taoist traditions and um, different animistic traditions that are kind of carried through um you know you have the the court of ghosts you know so you have like the court of the dead and it matches imperial chinese uh concepts you know and if you have in in um you know in voodoo and Vodun and that you have the loa which match to uh you know the different aspects of the way the society is arranged and in, um, you know, in Christian traditions, you know, when you're contacting angels, there's an angelic hierarchy. Um, and so, it, you know, and again, going back to kind of a, a, a imperial sort of uh, sense of the way the world works. So, um, you know, these things kind of they 
they mirror that, you know, but with, so with high magic and that, what it's mirroring is kind of the scientific process and the scientific worldview, but then taken to this, this invisible place. Whereas folk magic, most of the time deals with, um, more natural and nature based things, things that you would encounter in your day to day life, uh, in an agrarian society where you're doing farming. Um, you know, or it more contemporarily, um, you know, in an urban setting where you're, you know, you're not the, the judge or the, the, um, you know, the lawyer or that you're actually the person being, you know, prosecuted by the system and that. So you're, you're tapping into kind of the, the more earthy and, uh, stellar sort of powers. It was explained to me that, High magic is the people that have the money to be able to go out and buy the robes and the knives and all the chalices and things like that, whereas uh, folk magic is you're the farmer or whatever living up in, out in the backwoods, in the mountains, or wherever the heck you're living at, who can't afford to go out and buy these things, so you do the best you can with what you have. You may have a leaf, you may have spit, you may have blood, you may have salt, uh, all of these different things to work with, whereas the other people, you know, since you've got the money and the influence and the things like that, you can afford to be uh, more grand and gestious with what's, what's available to you. Um, whereas with folk magic and like uh, Romany gypsy magic, things like that, um, you use what you have to do what you need to do to affect the change that you need to make happen. Does, was that explained yeah. to me, you would say, yeah. properly? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in a, in a certain sense, um, you know, however, if you think about like um, smithing magic, right, like blacksmiths in uh, the medieval period and into the uh, 20th century um, in a lot of areas in Europe and Britain and that were considered to be, uh, you know, there was a kind of magical sense to them, like they were considered to be, uh, you know, magic um, and part of that kind of like forbidden world, um, and have access to that. And they're able to create, you know, iron. So works I, and that can kind I ask of- you, so, cause of course the big Smith is like what Hephaestus or whatever from Greece. So is it, is it, is there an ability to be able to trace some of these ideas about blacksmith magic? They ended up as a kind of like a more of a folk or, Per- magic back to some of these ancient concepts because if you know you start looking like you said comparative religion comparative mythology you start looking at these themes and these relationships and you start seeing things popping up continually yeah. um so i'm wondering if there's uh, been a relationship drawn there just out of curiosity. Yeah. well you know it, it it's it's really interesting because um the the smithing lore in uh in the christian world mm-hmm. in, in, in uh, Britain and that usually ties back to Tubalcain. Oh, uh-huh. to, uh huh. Tubalcain was uh, the first smith, the the one who forged the weapons for uh, you know he's one of Cain's uh, okay. lineage, right? So so Cain Cain brought war and civilization, yeah. and so those things were you know, and it's it was then mixed in with the the idea of the fallen angels giving the ability to create weapons and these tools and that so that people could could build civilization there's a whole mythology there and it's really detailed they um the crafts at the time you know we have freemasonry now most people know know that one but um all of the guilds had their own individual um entrance kind of rituals and that kind of thing that were essentially all the arts and the crafts were sacred in some sense um so you know it, it 
there are it's there's an interesting resonance there you know mm-hmm. and that's one of the things one of the pieces i did on santa muerta was the similarity between um how some people encounter saint death in uh the the mexican and the united states uh tradition and then mm-hmm. the way that the queen of elfland is treated in european and uh British folklore and there's a similarity there there's this this uh really interesting similarities that kind of cross over but is it the same you know is it the same probably not like they're different they kind of come from different places but we were talking behind the scenes about this the big connection there being the the uh, association with death and the uh, yeah. the other world being death and a lot of these folk magics have to do with uh uh graveyard dust with bones for Rogan I was sending him a uh a Chinese myth from 1860, which is one of the first Cinderella myths, but the whole idea is Cinderella, the Chinese Cinderella. Uh, her mother has died, but has reincarnated as, as a fish. The evil stepmother and her sisters kill the fish, but she's able to save the bones, and the bones are the magic that helps her. So here again, it's like the dead are helping the living. Yeah. Well, that happens. Yeah. You, you see that a lot in folk magic. Mm-hmm. You see that a lot in uh, like Yugoslavian exactly. witchcraft. There's a whole lot in there about mm-hmm. that where their their view of death is much different than we have here in the United States. For people like and you know, for like a Russian magic, for for lack of a better term, they're very much into like going to graveyards and having picnics with the dead, um, graveyard dirt, things like that. Great graveyard dirt and binding rituals. Of course, when you go and you take graveyard dirt, you kind of have to ask permission, and it's customary to leave some kind of an offering behind, like a coin or something like that. You shove it into the ground. Uh, you ask that you t- you're able to take some take some of the dirt with you or whatever. Um, and that is these are things that are very commonly used in those spells. They're not looked at as as black magic or white magic. It's just simply a tool that's used as part of the process of getting what you want. What you do with that, however, is a different story. It's not um, magic. Is it's it's like a hammer or something like that. A hammer itself is not in itself bad. You can use a hammer to build a house, build a cottage, make furniture. You could also use that same hammer and put it through someone's head and bash their brains in. So it's the use of what you do with it and these other elements, death and things like that, all tie into these kinds of things to just implement that along further. Or am I babbling? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. And that's the, you know, that's kind of the interesting thing um, with in the world that we live in now, um, you know, with digital media and with the way that we, we kind of look at things and it's very standardized in a lot of ways. Um, and these these practices coming from, you know, a, a totally different way of, of living and interacting with the world in a lot of ways. Um they, they provide this kind of bridge to go like, oh, wait a second, like, is that the norm? You know, like, is death so gross? Like, is it scary the way that, you know, it kind of feels in the in the contemporary world? Because, you know, when you're living in like an agrarian society in that, you know, and this is even, um, it comes up a lot in the news around um, Santeria practices and a lot of African diaspora practices, but the use of sacrifice of an animal and that and people freak out about it. But like, if you live in a farming community, killing a chicken is no big deal. You know I mean? That's not like, that's not like something that's going to like, you know, rock any boats. And so, you know, when it's used in a ritual manner and the people then feast on that and that's part of their communion with their, uh, you know, their spirituality. Yeah. But you had it in Christian Christianity. You don't hear about it anymore in Christianity, but for a long time, 
right? That's the tradition of Passover comes from where you sacrifice the lamb or a goat. I don't remember. I'm a little rusty on this. And you put the blood above your door. Yeah, that's yeah, actually that's, a Judaism, yeah, Judaism, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah <laughs> okay. that's Judaism. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, yeah. 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 And that's, and that's, so those kind of things aren't, you know, those aren't, aren't shocking. And then one of the interesting things, there's a, a researcher who's uh, really amazing, Claude Lecoteau, um, who's written extensively on um, fairy traditions, uh, folk magic traditions, and um, vampirism and, and witchcraft and stuff. His, his stuff's incredible. But um, he has this book on, um, on household traditions, traditions of household spirits and that. And one of the things that he pointed out that I'd never really thought of, but there was a time, right? And, you know, now living in the, the South, like I see it, like I've got a, the property that I live on now, the graveyard for the original like owners is literally like right down, right, right down the road. Like, and by right down the road, I mean like I can go through the woods behind my house and end up by mm-hmm. their graves. You know, it's not, like a, it's not like a, a cemetery that you would, you would find in a, a more uh, developed area. It's just like some graves out in the woods. So, but these were, those were the people that, uh, at least the white folks who had, um, you know, had this land back in the 1800s. So, um, the, you know, this, this idea of a cemetery as a sacred space originally was tied to the family. And that would be, you know, you would have your land and you would bury your your family there and those spirits would then protect the house and they would be part of that relationship. You would continue it, you know, which you see in the Day of the Dead uh, stuff in, in Mexico and, uh, you know, those kind of in Italy, there's similar traditions of, of going to the, the graves and that or like what you're talking about with having a picnic at the graves in Russian traditions and that. But um, there was actually a movement within the church at the Christian church as part of this kind of uh, co-option of that power to say, hey, you can't bury your family on your land anymore. You got to put it at the church. And it was literally a stealing of that power. Or it was this, it was almost like a necromantic working of like your this empowerment that you get from your from your family lineage that is buried with, you know, you bury your thing. It's in the Bible too, the, the bones mm-hmm. of my father. Right. Like you. You bury the 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 um, the dead with you know the the honored and revered dead and that, but the church had actually stole that from people, and they used that as a means of control to say <clears throat> you can no longer you know bury your dead on your land. You've got to bring it to the church, and then you visit it at the church. And it was this really you know if you think about the I mean that that level of manipulation, which we now don't consider that in any way weird. You know we go by a funeral plot somewhere, you know, some of it not even on consecrated ground. It's in a, you know, a memory garden or whatever. And, you know, we put the, the, the body there. Whereas in the past, it was this, you know, it, you, that would be unthought, unheard of, you know, and in agrarian areas and areas that are farming communities and that, that those traditions of burying on the property carried because you didn't necessarily have, you know, church property to build, you know, to bury it on, especially as, you know, People carry, and that's just your. Cutchin told me that uh, one time a long time ago. I don't know if he's listening or not, but he he had mentioned that he had asked a question of what's the difference in a graveyard and a cemetery, and the difference apparently that a graveyard is attached to a church, whereas a cemetery is its own standalone thing. Yeah. So, and now the tradition you're you're hearing a lot about people that are burying their dead and stuff back on their property again. That's kind of something that's come back around and gone full circle, and it's not looked at as strange anymore. And that's that's the thing. 
here in California, this it's, it's striking. I mean, first of all, it's not just you have to bury your dead here, but it's like you have to bury them in a particular way. And right. if they've committed suicide or we don't like them, then they don't get in. And then if they don't get in the cemetery, they don't get into it. So it's very yeah. controlling. Yeah. But what struck me was here, you know, I'm here in California and uh, many white people came here over uh, the continent in very severe conditions in the in, like during the gold rush and pioneer days and stuff. And so oftentimes you'd have people that would die along the way and they just have to bury them wherever they were. Um, My uh, grandmother, her uh, couple of, um, in I think around 1910, 1915, a couple of her siblings were coming over from Australia in a boat. They drowned. um, So their bodies were never recovered. Um, And so it's interesting to me because here there are definitely pockets where people are very concerned about burial. But here in California, there's a ton of people that just, oh, just cremate me. And then people just go and scatter their ashes wherever they want, even though you're not not supposed to. (laughs) So it's a very, I think because of that history, you end up having a very different um, relationship with things. Um, I have um, a uh, male relative who was much older than me and he was cremated and we ended up scattering his ashes in a completely illegal location that has a very uh, profound significance to the family. Um, So we have that place and that relationship there um, continuing, but it's kind of, like you say, it's like very much outside of uh, the religious authority as well as the legal authority. (laughs) So it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because when you've had this kind of break with, with being able to bury people at home because things are so um, on the move, but uh, people manage, you know, to create these traditions somehow. Yeah. yeah. So. And all this is also only in the, you know, kind of like drawing out of the European sense. Right. Exactly. You know, if you think of the First Nations traditions <clears throat> and, you know, their their sacred burial traditions, which were completely just trampled on and destroyed by um, the, you know, European Mm. rampage across the Americas, um, you know, and, and in other, you know, in other parts of the world too, there's, there's all sorts of burial traditions and it's this, you know, and, and going back to the idea of like, what is folk magic? And it's, it really is this, this relationship that people have with these kind of other areas with life and death, you know, and the things that make life and death well, possible. Tying it around over in Europe, if you were a rapist or a murderer, you weren't allowed to be buried into the graveyard of the church. They would bury you at the crossroads because right. um, they wanted to make sure right. that not only did you suffer in life when you got killed or hanged or whatever, they wanted to make sure that you continue to suffer in the afterlife. And the idea was that being buried at the well, middle of the crossroads, your spirit would not be it would be stuck to Rome or stuck there. It would never get in anywhere. It would be purgatory for the most part. Well, and that, that also that also kept yeah. you safe. Right, because if you were a murderer, or a thief, and or a suicide, and you died, then it was a good chance that you'd come back. Exactly. <laughs> so you want to you want to bury those bodies in a place where they're you know they're not going to return to. Uh, they'll stay dead. Yeah, they'll they'll stay carries dead. Carries over into know. the tradition of voodoo, and I believe there's some hoodoo traditions as well. Like that's for the whole legend of going to the crossroads to summon the devil, which is actually legba, but to summon to summon the devil to make a deal, you know, to do what you had to do. But there's also lots of different spells where you have to, um, you do whatever you're going to do, you make your mojo bag, and then you bury it at a crossroads. Or there's spells where you have to go and get dirt from a crossroads at a certain time at night and so forth. Um, and again, that all ties back to death. Yeah, well, and, and Legba is the, you know, the gatekeeper, 
so Legba is the you you know um, the one who opens the gates to the other world and that. So um, in uh, in the symbolism of the crossroads being that gateway between you know mm-hmm. the worlds and that and being able to access that at that point. Yeah, it's really interesting to see like how these things you know filter through, especially with the the devil mythology because. Um, you know, there's a yeah. Legba and the devil are not the same at all. Like Legba's supposed to be this really no, kindly yeah, man, no. but he's terrifying to look at. Well, he's also he is a trickster. He is a trickster. So you know, and that's the that's one of the interesting things too with like a lot of the 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 non whitewashed traditions is that you know even the friendly things are are uh, dangerous. You know, like you don't. You don't mess with the with the spirits, mm-hmm. you know, um, even if they're helpful. And that's uh, there's uh, my favorite. I think I shared this with you guys uh, when we were talking about the show um, in in a chat. But the um, the the invocation of Don Diego Duende, um, which I found in a, a Santa Muerta uh, book, and it's the invocation of Don Diego the Elf, and um, in this. Uh, prayer invocation you know this elf creature is uh called the king of kings and the uh you know basically like this great forest spirit that um the person who's invoking don diego feels completely empowered now to just crush their enemies because they, they walk with the elf you know which seems really ridiculous but what they're talking about is you know, in the, it, the, that particular prayer, I think, comes from uh, Venezuelan spiritist traditions. But they're talking about the forest spirit. And if you go, there's parts in South America where you go into the, the jungle and you just disappear. You know, people are known to disappear. And there's some there's a, a write-up in National Geographic, I think it was, not so long ago, maybe a year ago or so, where someone had been down there and they they basically got pixie lead into the jungle and ended up like completely like lost for like a couple days and like losing their mind and when they were found you know the people were like what what happened like where were you you know and they were just like yeah i don't know i heard i heard this sound and i had to follow it and they just got completely twisted and when they talked to the people from the area the people from the area were like oh you're lucky you came back you know because you were led and what were you led by you were led by you know this forest spirit right like which is you know, can be translated as an elf or a fairy. See, that's crazy because those traditions, obviously you're going to go to the European traditions. You know, that's where I would go, um, where they, they call them something different there. It's not pixies, but something along those lines. And Cutchins also brought that up before too, about being pixie led. That's one of his, uh, it's one of his big things. But um, these are stories that are continents apart and cultures apart. But these all have a same commonality. Yeah. Again, the same thing with the crossroads. That's that was you know you see yeah. what happens in Europe, and then you see what happens down in Haiti, and you see what happens in Africa. These all tr- these traditions that are separated by such great distances and by such great times and by such great practices, all have these threads of commonality that run through them, and that really fascinates me a lot of times as to how 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 does how do these things line up like this why where are these kernels of things that carry over from one another and have the similarities and you see that bleed into the magic practices as well yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely well one of the interesting things with the african traditions and european traditions is that they're you know i think that in in our contemporary understanding of of history we've lost the fact that like 
for the majority of history, there was a vast interconnected conversation going on between the globe, essentially, you know, not yes. necessarily the new world, but Africa, especially North Africa and that um, and China and the Middle East and Europe were in like, like incredible conversation. I mean, the, the Vikings came down to Rome, you know, I mean, they, they raided Rome, they Vikings, you know, probably were trading. There was there's examples of Buddha statues um, in Viking yeah. hordes, right? So like, the Vikings had contact with Buddhists, well, they, you know, so I got to tell you, I saw the stupidest thing one time. It was like a National Geographic show or something like that. And some guy was all excited because he thought that he had found evidence uh, of um, Indian influence, like in, I don't know, Eastern Europe or something, because there was this cave and there was this painting of this person who had this particular type of um, depicted wearing this particular type of cloth that is only woven in India. And he was so excited about it. And I was thinking, what is wrong with you? Because the person wearing that was depicted wearing this cloth was the Buddha. <laughs> right. And I was right. like, <laughs> I was like uh, hello. But yeah, there is this incredible, um, like you say, conversation, and a lot of uh, back and forth. I think there's like this kind of, like you were talking about before, we have these concepts for trying to ma- uh, understand and get a handle on some of these um, things that are happening in the world, but they're just concepts. And I think that, like in a lot of archaeology and history and stuff, they like to come up with certain laws or kind of ideas about things that have happened, which may or may not have anything to do with you know it. It simplifies things, oversimplifies right. things, right? And certain things it's, out. It's like you said so. when you're on the last episode. This is all drawing from a source or a thing that we don't have a name for, for the most part. You know, yeah. we all try yeah. to. You try to classify it and put it into certain things and you really can't because it's such a big thing that everything ties into. And I often wonder if that's a side effect of having to deal with religion and so forth. Um, Because you have like, in my experience or anything I've read, you have Christianity, which is more or less a envelop and conquer kind of religion. If you can't like Christianity, that's how it evolves by absorbing other cultures and other religions into itself to try to get people to come and become part of that religion. What you've seen happen all over in Europe and things like that, that's kind of like um, like Catholic, Catholicism, Catholics, um, a lot of the things that they do, if you really look at them, they are magical practices. It's just the source of what they're putting their magic oh, yeah, towards. Yeah. Instead of putting out you know, whatever the ritual and putting it out into the universe, they're relying on God as their source. But you have the robes and the staves and all of the different things that you do. I've had some friends that were working on that were like, yeah, this, what they're doing right here is a direct translation to what we do over here, you know? Yeah. Well, and you, you know, what's interesting about that is actually because those, <laughs> the ritual magic practices that people get from the grimoires, the grimoires actually came out of the exorcist tradition of the Catholic church. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, exorcism, actually the, the term exorcism comes from the same root as conjuration. And so in the, in the Catholic tradition, um, you know, and in the Eastern Orthodox tradition to some extent, but the, what you're doing is you're actually invoking the spirit that you think is, is possessing someone. And then you're, you know, you're conjuring them into, you know, interaction with it. Right. And then you are commanding it out of the body. But it's actually a summoning. It's a ritual summoning. And all of those practices that you get in the grimoires were originally done by exorcists. If you go back in the, the history of, of the, the grimoire magic and that, um, which which is then, you know, the high magic. And that goes into, especially with Wicca, because Wicca was created by uh, Crowley and Gardner. 
So, you know, they were they were drawing on this this European magical tradition, which came straight out of the Catholic, um, uh, you know, exorcism mm-hmm. tradition and was interested. One of the one of the weird things I found, um, you know, in a folky sense was that, you know, in uh, a much more prevalent form of exorcism in uh, in Christianity is Pentecostal and charismatic exorcisms. And those are much closer to um kind of folk practices of possession and transpossession in that there's actually some interesting uh correspondences to some transpossession uh dances in that the uh you know the the pentecostal traditions i was really wondering um what when i was looking at the books the books that they they are publishing in their writing um which is where i I made the joking term uh, grocery store grimoire because they're they're really close to grimoires. I mean, they have, you know, this demon does this, this does X, Y, Z. This is what you see when you, uh, you, when you encounter this demon, this is how you get rid of this demon. And it's like demonic, it's like a, a full demon, demonology and a list and that of these different demons. And that's what you find in the grimoires. And I was like, this is pretty amazing, you know, cause you can get them at the grocery store. You can get them really? at Walmart. Not now. up here. So I was wondering, I, I gotta keep an eye out for these things. Yeah. <laughs> Up in Chicago, yeah, like uh, Barnes and Noble and stuff too. Yeah. Borders, yeah. Like, oh yeah, is out of business now. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'd see a lot of those around here. Yeah, you can. You actually, uh, I Rogan in Chicago, you can get them. So I'm pretty sure you know in Michigan, if you if you go around the the Walmart and that, um, you can occasionally find these things. I've got uh, I have strategies of state. Like, are they by the cash registers, or are they on the sh- bookshelves on the back of the store? Or? They're yeah, they're yeah, they're in the inspiration okay. book section. Um, yeah. so yeah, I have a, a copy of strategies of Satan. I picked up at a Walmart in Chicago, um, which is a, a nice little pulpy, uh, You've been sleeping with it under your pillow. Don't lie. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, it's actually haphazardly tossed on the floor <laughs> with, oh, with, yeah, with little respect to it. But, um, but yeah, I was looking at these things and I was wondering like, has anyone ever back engineered this stuff? Right. Cause like, that's what happened. That's where you get ritual magic is that originally the people who were doing the exorcisms were like well you know what if we kind of kept this one around mm-hmm. right like we kind of when we used it like what could we do with this so um you know that that's making it very simple but like that is kind of part of the thread for how ritual magic develops so i was wondering in the pentecostal sense does this ever happen and there's a an author derek prince um who is a he was a charismatic guy that was big in developing the deliverance ministry movement and these uh this kind of pentecostal exorcist movement in the 70s and into the 80s and that and he had this book um which has a long title i can't remember right now but it's like how to break curses and and some other stuff so i was looking in that one and derek prince is great because he includes a lot of anecdotes from his pastoral work and sure enough he has this fantastic anecdote about how you know some of these pastors that were doing you got to be careful with exorcism because some of these pastors that were doing it at the very beginning had started to you know they would bring uh someone that they thought was possessed in and then they would conjure the the demon right and then they would work with the demon to get occult secrets and then he you know in his anecdote claims that these pastors while they were doing this like ended up falling into like uh you know heresy and then some of them died 
And I was like, that's great. So like I I wondered, you know, was anybody doing this? Was anybody back engineering it? And sure enough, you know, I guess some people were, you know, and I can imagine, you know, if if that was one case, there's probably other places in the world where some of these pastors who are supposed to be, you know, casting the demons out are also. You said Derek Prince, right? uh, Yeah. Hold on a minute. I think I know which book you're talking about. Um. No. Isn't that what, like one of like the Oops, traditional uh, uh, cautions as far as exorcisms go, though, is like that why you need someone who's, you know, very yeah. upright and because you, that's the danger is that you're going to try to be the devil's going to or these enemies are going to try to seduce you to yeah. the off the path. So when yeah. did when did this um, uh, the the uh, exorcism grimoires that you're talking about as uh, here, when, when were they uh, starting to be written down about? Uh, I have that book. <laughs> They shall they shall expel demons. What you need to know about demons, your invisible enemies. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just the name jugged, rung, rung a bell with me. <laughs> is that is that is that Derek Prince? Yeah, is that it's, a it's Derek one Prince of his one? books. There's a whole bunch of them, but I actually have that book. I've never actually opened it, but I've got it. Yeah. Well, that's a grocery that's a grocery store grandma. You can pick that up down here in the grocery store. Like seriously. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Grocery store. Okay, I'm sorry to cut you guys off. I just thought it was funny that you brought it up, and I looked over at my shelf, and I'm like, that sounds familiar. Hold on a minute. I've, there it is. You're like, where do you get those? Oh, right over here. Yeah, right <laughs> on my shelf. I've never seen those before. That's awesome. <laughs> Dig around. I've got so many books. <laughs> yeah. Grocery store. I've never thought of them in that term before now that's what's going to be what's going to be called now grocery store grimoires okay i'm so sorry go ahead and continue what you were saying um the the first ones to be written down uh probably early middle ages late middle ages um they were there was a whole the, the exorcism tradition so fascinating because it was um it's actually a, a kind of offshoot ministry that they you didn't want to have a priest that was too imaginative Yep. Um, For the very for the very reason of being like seduced by these ideas. And then also, you know, you don't want somebody who's, you know, uh, looking into the, the, you know, secrets of nature and that then suddenly they're dealing with demon spirits and it gets real funky. So you want somebody who's just kind of a down to earth, um, basic, uh, really grounded pastor. Um, you know, because these, these forces are working in the imaginal and they're working in the realm of the spirit, right? So if you stay on the material plane, they can't, they don't have much they can do. Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're, if you're just fairly stable in your day and you like, like, you know, your bread untoasted and you don't have any wants, you know what I mean? So just these basic things would keep them protected. So it was uh, a lot of times a lay ministry. So the exorcists weren't even necessarily, uh, you know, priests in that. They were a lot of times lay ministers because it was also kind of a dirty. Because they have a more stable, they have a more stable down to earth lifestyle, right? They're not sitting there meditating and praying all the time and thinking about things. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it's it's the dirty work too. So you don't want your, you don't want your priests involved in that. And then one of the interesting things with that lay ministry though, is that you find this as well in Buddhism. Um, where, um, you know, in Vajrayana and that the exorcist traditions there are a lot of times the householders, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the householders that, that do this. So, um, you, you find this kind of commonality of, you know, stable grounded individuals to, to have this practice. And then within the, within the, it was kind of called the clerical underground, these manuals started to get traded, you know, the different, like, these are the prayers and that kind of thing. And then they got expanded upon, um, 
you know, indifferent. That's how you got the long lost friend, though. That's where you got like cunning men and things from. Those are the practitioners. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that's that's powwow magic right. for the most part. Which, if you, if you actually look at it, it's like because when I, I got the long lost friend, I started running through it and stuff and started looking at it. It's like these aren't really spells; these are just prayers. They're just rewordings of different things. Yeah, it's the psalms. The the it's interesting because that one actually comes out of. Um, uh, I don't have long lost friend with me here, but I've got Secret of the Psalms by Gottfried Selig, and they're actually it's it's actually kabbalistic. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, there's, a, I feel like we're having a book of the month club meeting here. Go ahead. Not <laughs> 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 have a list afterwards. So people with your, with your, uh, like Amazon things. So people can like buy and give you a little like cut back or kick. Oh, there you go. God, I've got so many. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, uh, this conversation that we were talking about in cross cultural and that in Europe, the conversation between Islam, um, uh, Judaism and Christianity, you know, throughout the history of Europe was incredibly strong, as, especially at the level of uh, these kind of esoteric practices. And one of the interesting things that happens when the printing press comes out and it's no longer just scribes copying things down is that you start to have this weird, uh, you know, these books become like this forbidden thing. So it's almost like you know, and it, you can find it now too. I mean, like the the expense on certain books, like you know, trying to get like a first edition John Keel or something like that. Like there's mm-hmm. this this mystery to it, you know. So the things like seventy dollars or like three hundred dollars or something, and it was a mass market paper book, back book, you know. But like so back in once the printing press is invented, you start to get these books printed out that are you know these books on magic and that, and they're they're mixing. Judaic traditions, they're mixing Christian traditions, they're mixing Islamic traditions, and they're mixing folklore into that. And there's this amazing uh, kind of conversation going on. And then when you get the, you know, when you get people in the Americas um, starting to have and trade these books and pass that along, um, you know, the the early, like the colonies and that, you know, like if the, um, the Old Farmer's Almanac, Right. It was founded in 1792. These things are still in print and it's got astrology in it. And, you know, you've got like the you've got like the astrological. It talks about um, it gives you the conjunctions for that day. Um, It's got the man of signs, which is good for um, tying healing practices to the uh, positions of the zodiac at that particular time. Um, You know, but this so this book's been around since 1792, um, you know, and in continuous public publication each year and carried over the the astrology stuff and you can only imagine in 1792 that was even more of a focus you know so yeah but now it's not looked at as it's not looked at as demonic or you know of of dark magic or anything like that people yeah it's just a farmer's almanac that's all it is you know they don't they don't see it that way so yeah some people do well yeah even back then the fundies but (laughs) yeah i mean there are there's still a strain of people that yeah would definitely yeah well, and that's that's an interesting thing too, because even um, a lot of our conceptions of that are post like evangelical Christianity, mm-hmm. because you know if you go back to the 1800s and that like the the mix of what we would consider magic now with what we would consider fundamentalists, even the Puritans and that, they had an incredibly magical way of viewing the world, and oh, it yes. was you know and, and astrology and that wasn't consi- astrology alchemy. Um, those things weren't considered um, necessarily against. No, they were science. Yeah, it was it was scientific, and it was also it was it was God's it was it was the sign of God's um, 
you know, power in the world that those things occurred and that they had that, you know, and that it's interesting with alchemy too, because someone like Cotton Mather, right, who's famous for the Salem witch trials in his writings on Christianity uses a ton of alchemical language and mm. alchemy as a as a an allegory and a symbol for god's working in the world you know so these things that now you know you, you look at like fundamentalists would be like alchemy is evil and it's the devil and you know yoga and that but like back then i run into that now i have a symbol of the, Fib the fibonacci symbol hanging from my mirror in my car and i've got a, a metatron's cube and a few other things laying around here and I often get side-eyed from it. Um, but to try to sit down and explain this is sacred geometry, this is not what you think it is, this is mathematical stuff, it's not going to fly at all. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, you're of the yeah. And I'm like, no, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm like, no, this is this is Metatron's cube, and, 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 the, and this is this is the Fibonacci sequence, and they try to explain what the Fibonacci scale is. And you, you, That's great. I love that's yeah, like the, you know, it, it, yeah, I can imagine like, Roger uh, sitting there trying to pump gas, and this, this guy's there, and he's like trying to t explain the Fibonacci sequence too. I've had that conversation. <laughs> I, I had a I had a Fibonacci sequence necklace on not too long ago. I went into a uh, I had to go into an auto parts store and buy some special oil for my mm -hmm. motorcycle. And the guy behind the counter looked at it. And he goes, "What's what's that symbol you got on there?" And I'm like, "Oh, that's the that's the Fibonacci." And he's he like his his brain was just melting like I was a Satanist. I'm like, "It's a mathematical equation. It's one one you know two three five. It's a mathematical repeating." I'm like, "Do you know what Paisleys are?" And he's like, "No." <laughs> you know, I'm like, "You know what? Never mind. It's fractal. It's a fractal thing." You know, and the, the guy just was not getting it at all. And I could tell like it was just going to go nowhere to have this conversation with him. And I've. I've run into a lot of things like that where like uh, Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic, when you see the symbols and stuff on the side of barns and out in countryside houses and stuff, there's a lot of people that don't realize the esoteric nature of the symbols that they have painted yeah. on their house. They don't realize what the star means and all these different things of what they mean. I'm like, that's Pennsylvania Dutch hex magic. And you try to explain it to them and they're like, I just thought it was a symbol that you see on old country houses and stuff like that. And then they, then when you do explain it to them, then they, then you, then they give you the look of, I call it the look of weirdness. <laughs> it's like, it's like there's this thing that happens in people's subconsciousness when you explain something and there's this little thing that goes off inside their head saying, I don't know what you're, it's like, I don't know what you're thinking and I don't know what you're explaining to me. But that doesn't seem like it's right with the Lord. So I'm just going to look at you really strange. You know, <laughs> like they get that look on their face and you're like, yeah, I think I'm done here. I should yep. go. <laughs> you know too much. Yeah, they, well, they, you know too much. You know, yes. they're like, this one's not good. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as you mention like blah, 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 Dutch hex magic, hex magic, yeah, that's, that's evil. That is of that is of the devil. I'm like, no, it's not. It's actually derivative of what your religion actually, you know what? Never mind. You're just... <laughs> I'm going to go now. <laughs> no, it seems so, like we're getting back to this, this thing I'm seeing of that, because um, I'm thinking of George Hansen, Trickster in the Paranormal, and he talks about uh, status and stability and authority yeah. as these kind of qualities that you, of uh, things in society. And what you ha seem to be having is that once we um, started to have these agricultural societies and, and then you started to have like these larger structures, you know, cities and uh, churches, you have certain uh, – uh, people and groups that are in authority, you know, they'll have uh, more property. Um, they have authority to, uh, for example, uh, enact laws or prosecute laws or put people in and out of the church. Uh, they'll have like a, a big stable building that's important that people help support, uh, things like this, um, as opposed to. Yeah, it's all about control. Yes, as opposed to, um, you know, and also certain systems of thought and propagating that thought. 
Um, they'll be more likely to be literate and have access to scribes or printing presses or distribution. Um, you know, today, if you have like a mega church, right, you know, they would going to have big servers and all that type of stuff. So they can have their big website and live stream shows and all that type of stuff. It's a similar type of thing. But there seems to be kind of a, um, how do I want to say, that this uh, information and ideas get generated and various parts of society um, either in the high status places or the low status places, and they kind of uh, are grabbing at each other, right? So you have people that are, uh, you know, in the backwoods in Georgia doing hoodoo, but they're uh, drawing on the power of the Bible to help power that. But then you also have um, the church, like you were talking about, David, when um, they see that people are burying their own dead and they say that's, and, and having that relationship with them, they say, oh, we can co-opt this, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you yeah. have this real kind of uh, flowing back and forth of these things. And I was reading an article that you wrote, David. All I can remember about it is that the on Medium it said that it took 18 minutes to read. <laughs> 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 but anyway, you had made the point that um, when it comes to folk magic practices, uh, one thing that distinguishes it from, uh, let's say, ritual magic or uh, uh, you know, a, a, an established religion is that people just want results and they're not going to be concerned about, oh, wait, this is actually deriving from, uh, you know, Cherokee uh, traditions and I'm trying to work in a strictly uh, Congolese uh, kind of manner of working here or something like that. No, they're just going to put something together that they think is yeah, going to yeah, help yeah. them with usually a very real practical problem that they're having in their lives. Yeah. And that's, it's, especially, you know, it's, it's a, it mostly an oral tradition and mm -hmm. in, in true like folk traditions in that they come from the ability to do what you say you're going to do. You yeah. know, so like in the, in going through, uh, Georgia and that and talking to people whose, uh, you know, grandparents, uh, great grandparents in one instance, the guy's father, um, were, uh, traditional healers. Um, you know, they were born with a certain predisposition to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. um, they grew up in a situation, the, uh, this guy Preston that I talked to, whose dad was a, a traditional healer and kind of like a spirit seer sort of guy. Um, he was he was healing people at like seven and eight, mm -hmm. you know, and they were his parents were taking him around. It's to heal uh, thrush, which, which is a, a fungal infection in the mouth. Um, and it was real common with kids. And, uh, you know, there were certain kids that his father happened to be born with a um, birth call. So he was born with a veil. And that was how they recognized that he'd be a healer. You know, so. You, you see that a lot in folk magic, uh, like, you know, backwoods folk magic where people are born into this and they're born into a certain gift or they're born under certain, cer certain circumstances like a blood moon or, or things like that that convey these abilities onto them. It's believed that, that um, you know, that, that these things are also passed on generationally mm -hmm. through the family and so forth. And they kind of entwine it with this Christian folk magic. Um, which Christian, most people don't understand that Christian folk magic goes back a very, very long time. It's not discussed anymore in this day and age of the church, but, um, you have, you have these practices that even within Christianity that go back way, way back. There's lots of books out there about ancient Christian magic. Oh, and yeah, so forth. Yeah. Um, and you see throughout this whole tradition that 
certain people in the family, which you see a lot in Appalachia. Appalachia. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. I know you're going to, I'm going to get a million <laughs> messages and emails like, you're pronouncing it wrong. I always singly do. I'm, I'm from Detroit. I'm from Michigan. I have a speech impairment. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> deal with it, y'all. But, um, you see this as a repeating thread throughout to where it's not necessarily that they're working spells, it is also like a a sixth sense uh, paranormal yeah. extra gift or something that the two are entwined with one another. So they can only teach the layman so much, and then after that, there's certain things that they can only do. Thrush is a very common one that you see brought up repeatedly throughout yeah. the um, United States and Southern folklore, as is like uh, healing animals and things like mm -hmm. that that give sour milk and so forth. Yeah, and blood stopping. Um, uh, and warts. Yeah, warts. Wart cunning, yeah. Yeah, warts cunning. There's another one. Um, there's a story, I believe, of, that I read about where a guy was having dinner with a skeptic and the, he was talking about blood stopping, and the skeptic's like, all right, fine, take this piece of steak here and stop you know, stop it from bleeding. The guy says, okay, I can do that, but once I do that, it's going to ruin your dinner. So the guy does this thing and ruins the guy's dinner. He can't eat the steak anymore because of whatever he does on it. The steak will not bleed or what have you, which I don't know how it would ruin the dinner. I mean, does that mean you can't – does it make it into leather and you can't chew it? I'm not sure where that, that was going with that. But that's another the, – the blood stopping thing is another very common one. There's like – five or six different things that all kind of like fit in the list. It's kind of like finding the Dalai Lama. Can you, can you stop blood? Can you heal thrush? Can you right. do this? Can you do that? All right, then you can do this. And it's dowsing. kind of like, uh, dowsing as and well. dowsing is another one. Yes. It's kind of like the seven wonders in witchcraft or something. If you can right. do all of these, okay, you're in the club. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting too, because that was, um, you know, there, uh, where the property that I'm at now, um, when I was trying to get the well fixed, I started talking to a guy, uh, the guy who's helping me get the well fixed and he was telling me about a local dowser. And as he was talking about it, like we got to talking about other stuff and it turned out that this guy who's mostly known as a dowser, um, also did the thrush healing when he was a kid and, and could, uh, talk out burns and all that. So he had all these other things, but if you look he's in Foxfire, um, I forget the, the guy's name. Um, yeah, I can't remember what the Dowster's name was, but he's written up mm -hmm. in Foxfire, which is a collection of Southern folklore um, that's very popular. And uh, he's only mentioned as a Dowser, but you know he did have he had that collection of of uh, abilities that he was known for, including uh, some seership and um, talking about communicating with angels and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's and it's like interesting. Somebody shows up. What's your magical resume? Oh, I see here that you can yeah. and blah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and then and these things are all practical too, so you actually have to do it. You know, it's not like, yeah, I can summon monsters or whatever, you know, and nobody ever sees it. You can talk about it and draw pictures and write books and, you know, there's no question. In these situations, mm -hmm. it's like, can you talk out the burn? Like, well, let's see you do it because my son just got a third degree burn or my daughter, you know, is going to lose her leg if you don't stop the blood, right? So, like... um, then the person actually has to perform, you know, they actually have to do the thing. And if they can't do the thing, then they're not, they're not. That's another commonality with folk magic is that this, the, the spells and things that people do with folk magic are done out of, out of a need because of a lack of something like a lack of medical practitioners, a lack of sanitation, yeah. a need for finding water. The stuff that these people do, it's not like there is also like I've noticed with folk magic as well. There is a tendency for a lot of like love spells and things like that, more so than I think I've ever seen in any form of, of magical practice. There's a lot of love potion stuff like that. It's a reoccurring that, thing as well. That gets down to a need, too, because I was uh, uh, David had sent me uh, Hyatt. He, he went in 
down through the, the South and like the, what the thirties, forties and fifties, he was collecting mm-hmm. all these um, informant testimonies, stories about hoodoo and folk magic. And he said, there's a ton of love magic and uh, spells in there. But the thing is, is at that time and place for women, right? You need you, to find a husband. Yeah. You had no, I mean, when my mom got divorced from my dad in the very early 1980s, she couldn't get anyone to give her a credit card in her own name because yeah. and she, she had her own job. She had her own money. It, finally, there was one lady that she knew professionally who was in one bank and was able to get it that way. But yeah, so back then it was it was a lot worse. You know, you need to have that type of control. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're going to have any contact with the legal system, um, if you're going to have access to money, anything is going to all be through your husband um, or your lover, uh, because you have really that legal standing at that point. And then the other thing too, is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of spells for getting your husband to have sex with you and not other people. Um, because of course you Here have children together. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it. Come on, let's go. <laughs> But the, but the thing, no one should ever do that. But um, if, if someone is not interested in your face, is so love, red right now, isn't it? How red are? How embarrassed right. are you? Come on. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go but ahead. The thing is, if, you know, if, if you're married and you know you're not producing children, right? People are going to look askance at you, and that's like basically, you know, the children at that time they would provide labor. Um, it's a way to tie you to this man in the future and have him be interested in supporting you. And then also, as your children get older and you get older, then they'll help support you. You know, when they didn't have social security necessarily back then, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of like a retirement plan too. So there's a lot of motivation besides just kind of general, you know, horniness or lovelornness or yeah. mooning around, right? Female so, magical domination. <laughs> Follow me, boy. Yeah. I was cracking up. I don't know if either of you guys had a chance to see that, but um, I saw this uh, YouTube video, and it's this guy who's a, a Egyptologist in Chicago, and he was studying these various papyruses. And so there's back then in ancient Egypt. This is around the time of the turn of the the AC to BC. No, B, uh, I. You know, uh, around the time of the birth of Christ, that's what I want to say, and um, in Egypt, and they had seen a lot of love spells and stuff for guys trying to get in women's pants, but they had started to run across a few where it uh, had been commissioned by women um, from scribes who would, um, you know, you go and tell them what you want to have happen, and then they would um, write up the spell for you, and um, this one that they had found this woman really wanted this one guy and it was fascinating to me because a lot of the uh the wording was about follow me i want him to follow my footsteps i want him to follow me until you know he falls at my feet which you can go on like lucky mojo now and find follow me boy oil follow me boy oil. there's all this huge thing of track magic and this is like you know what a couple thousand years ago in egypt it's like the same imagery um actually they ended up uh this you'll like this erosion because it has to do with ghosts and sex. What? So, Wait, um, whoa. <laughs> they, ended up, <laughs> they ended up folding up the spell on a piece of papyrus. And the whole idea behind the spell was uh, this, the ghost of this mummy was supposed to compel this guy to not rest until um, he had sex with her. Uh, this lady that commissioned the spell. So they folded it up and they put it in this mummy's mouth. So I'm dying to know what happened, but I, I don't think we're going to find out. <laughs> 
But anyway. That's strange. You, you fold up a piece of papyrus and you put it in the person's mouth. Is that what yeah, you said? Yeah, mommy's mouth. Now, now you're talking about the steps of making a golem for the most part. You take the true name of God, put it on a piece of paper, fold it up. You craft yourself a golem, put the paper into the golem's mouth and shut the creature's mouth. And that, that spell, the, the spell that you've done is what imbues well, that you got to walk around the body so many times. You need three people to do it. No one's entirely sure of what the whole uh, process of Kabbalah is to, to pull this thing off. But the the similarity of taking this and putting it into a person, putting it into the mummy's mouth, and having that mummy, you're reaching into the world of the dead to say, "Hey, affect this person's free will and entrance, uh, interest and influence to make this person fall in love with me." Um, I've I've read that a lot of other times too, where the idea of taking something up and putting folding it up and putting it into a corpse's mouth and closing its mouth as as like a vessel to get that to get that intention over to the afterlife and to the next world. Yeah, and it's you know it's the power of of the the word of of the divine word, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to to use that to 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 actually use it, you know, not just not read it in the bible yeah. but actually, you know, use it and you find that in uh the um you know, in the powwow tradition and the psalm magic and that where it's uh actually considering the effective uh power of those words as you know it as a kind of way to connect to that divine power and that what's your belief in the, it's it's just like anything else in folk magic you might be using a leaf and spit to do whatever you do but it's your belief in the power of what you're using to get that across because everything else is just props you know, if you want to break it down for magic, yeah. for whatever magic is, one person's magic is as good as anybody mm. else. But it's the things that you're using to try to, to get across are props. No, am I am I getting an argument here? Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's so it's it's interesting because it's you know the um, I think I think it was uh, uh, no, it was Paracelsus. Paracelsus talking about herbs as. Um, essentially like the the vegetative stars right so the reason that you would collect a certain herb on a certain uh night or day or at a certain kind of celestial alignment is because the uh stellar influences that were embodied in that herb would be most potent at that that time you know and so one of the things that's with the you know with folk magic well with with any magic really but you're you're accessing this vision of the cosmos that is completely interconnected, you know? So, so the things do matter because you're, you're not just kind of using the thing arbitrarily. You're using it because it has certain correspondences to it means something. Yeah. And, you know, and not, and the, and in meaning in that sense where it literally is connected to that thing, you know? So, yeah, but is that because you, you be, you're putting your belief into that thing that you that, that no. you believe that that's what it's going to do though I mean maybe in a psychological sense but in the in the actual practice itself um, it's it's literally because that thing is connected to it you know so like they wouldn't just be doing it to uh, you know they would they would put it into the mummy's mouth so that they could access the um, I don't my Egyptian, uh, my Egyptian. A certain part stuff. of the of the yeah, spirit the, of the. Well, yeah, the car, the ba, whichever one yeah. is the whichever one is the one that flies around and is still connected. So you would actually put it in there so that you would you would have access to that. In um, Caribbean magic, uh, they're called duppies. So it's like the ghost 
of mm-hmm. the, the spirit that you're working with. Um, you know, and in uh, the one of the, the interesting things with hoodoo, hoodoo is kind of a, a made up term because there's I, down here, like I've never met anybody who was a traditional practitioner who used any of the words that people would normally use. So like if you go up to like a traditional practitioner and you're like, hey, do you do hoodoo? Like they're going to be like, well, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. They call it root work or something, don't they? No, no. Even if you say root work or any of that, they're going to be like, you know, they may say like fixing a root or something yeah. like that. But that's kind of almost like a nod to to what people would understand. Like it's very it's very nameless. You know, um, there's a, a funny instance with that where I uh, Preston who uh, was telling me about his father, he worked down the street from where I was staying at the time. And a friend of mine came over and uh, he, I had, at that point I had written, uh, I'd written up an interview that I had with Preston about his dad. And so my friend, you know, thinking that he's going to like get these like deep, deep secrets of conjure or something out of this guy. He, uh, we're in this alley and Preston comes walking up and I'm like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? So we start talking and my friend uh, is like, Hey, Hey, yeah. Um, so, so, you know, what about, what about using the Psalms for magic? And they, and Preston just looks at him like, what are you talking about? And then he's like, you know, you can like fix a root on somebody. Do you know about that? Can you tell him? And Preston's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he started talking about ice cream or something like he did. It was just totally not interested <laughs> in the conversation at that point. But I had talked Shut to him. Shut down. Yeah. And I had talked to him extensively about this stuff, but like, I didn't come out like, you know, like, Oh, tell me about your soul magic practice or, you know, tell me about fixing a root or, you know, hexing and stuff like that. So, um, it was, you know, we, we talked around it and we're able to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's kind of interesting in that sense. But what I was going to say with the, the hoodoo thing, so hoodoo is kind of like a catch all for root work and conjure. And those are two different traditions. Like conjure is literally conjuring and working with spirits. Root work is working with materia magica and herbalism and that kind of thing. And there's a spirit there that you're working with, the spirit of the plant. And sometimes there's, you know, you're, there's some working of the spirit into the plant and that. But they're actually two different things. And conjure, you know, is dealing with, um, you know, a lot of times the uh, kind of folk derived grimoires like the sixth and seventh book of Moses, um, and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there's, yeah, there's a very active sense to it and it's not, it's not arbitrary in that way. If, if, if it is arbitrary, it's arbitrary based on, uh, the oral transmission and kind of what they do. Like there's a lot of instances where people, um, the, the talking out the fire, for instance, there's a specific passage in the Bible that's related to that practice. Now, depending on who you talk to, who does it, they may have a different section of the Bible that they're using. They may have a section of the Bible that's actually not even in the Bible. There's a great, um, I don't know if it's in that's the best part of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, I don't know if it was Hyatt or I, it may have been someone else, but they were they were interviewing about this practice and you know the person was like oh yeah well it's you know it's this section in the bible and this is the prayer and they're like that's not in the bible and the the practitioner's like yeah it is (laughs) it's like okay (laughs) you know sure it's it's not but it is okay that works you know and so and that but that was those were the words of power that they were given and you know sometimes like i think in that instance too it was kind of funny because it was totally a folk rhyme you know, it was like Jesus came on this day and the ice came and, you know, it was things that would never be in the Bible. And like, um, 
it, it sounded more like a like a, a British kind of like folk rhyme. But, um, you know, to them, that was in the Bible. And it, they were like, you know, you just got to read it right. You know, like you just you're not looking in the right place, you know, like which is kind of a cool uh, little, you know, hint to what's going on there. You know, you're not looking in the right place. Well, that's the thing is that you have um, it was very interesting to me to hear you talking about Preston and the whole idea of vocabulary versus experience, because um, personally, I had a, a near death experience back in the midst of time, probably like 35 years ago, and I was put in contact with these beings. I'm still in contact with them. Um, And so I've learned an incredible amount from them, which always makes me feel very nervous talking about this type of stuff, because a lot of what I have learned, I've learned through, you know, like inspiration or working with these invisible beings that have nothing to back it up. Um, But, you know, it's an experiential type of thing. And I find it very practical, but um, I'll run across, uh, like sometimes I'll ask like Ren Collier, I'll, I'll see him talk about something on Twitter. And I'll be like, because he's very uh, interested in high magic and ritual and, and these very kind of precise technologies for working with consciousness this way. And so I'll ask him, okay, so what about this kind of state when you get in this particular type of altered state that's kind of like this and that, blah, blah, blah. Do you know what they call it or what it is? He's, he's a fascinating guy. He's a he's a doll. He's really sweet. I like him. Um, he's also very knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so there's that whole thing too of you know that the experience is not the word, right? But at the same time, when you're working in these arenas, that these uh, words and images and objects can um, kind of be imbued with certain aspects of uh, experience or. I don't want to say um, a numinous quality related to a particular entity or something, say. So, yeah. And, then, and with that kind of stuff, too, I think is a good example where you, you get a sense that, um, you know, I, I guess it'd be interesting to to have a, a Wargonian, uh, like a, a Eric Wargo uh, devil's advocate to this. But um, if you start to if you start to do the kind of folk practices um, and you have the ability to access the, to access the juice, you know, to get the, to get actually get the, the work going. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of times you'll find that those contacts with that, these, these other things, you know, that are kind of nameless in that, um, will tell you things that you can confirm later. Oh yeah. The legitimate That's how you thing. know supposed to do you know so it's like you're going to make a talisman on something and you know you you find xyz and you put it together and you start to do the work and then you know sure enough two months later you're looking at traditional talismans in you know uh whatever tradition and it those those same ingredients are listed out you know what i mean so mm-hmm. like you know there's a sense of um and that's the other thing that's interesting too with a lot of the traditional practitioners um you know if you look at the uh, the kind of academic research on it, a lot of times it avoids the fact that these people were in contact with uh, discarnate entities, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not mentioned, you know, because they didn't even necessarily mention it. But if you if you listen to their family talk or like you you actually get to talk to them, um, almost always there's some connection to a discarnate conversation going on you know um so this is another question i had is okay so it, we've talked about the spirits of the dead like ancestors um 
there's nature spirit. I mean, what are all these different type of spirits? And what is there like a particular type of discarnate entity that most of these people are in touch with? Or yeah, you know? I, no, I think of, I mean, yeah, I don't know that we I don't know that there's a definitive answer to that it, it kind of spans, you know, with folk magic, it's usually spirits of the dead. Or some sort of uh, kind of natural spirit, but there's different languages there too, right? Like a, yeah. uh, you know, the uh, they don't they don't speak the same language, so you kind of get a sense of like what you're dealing with, you know. Like if you're talking to like a, a a nature spirit, it's not speaking in human language necessarily. It's more emotive and and a different kind of feeling to that, you know. And it's interesting because you can find. And one of the most, I, I, with the cross comparisons in that, it's fascinating to go to stuff that people kind of revere as um, enlightened kind of practices. Like if you go to Buddhism in that, and if you mm-hmm. start to actually dig into Buddhism and dig into the, the, the true like practices and not just the kind of like textual tradition and that the actual practices, mm-hmm. uh, they deal with the same kind of stuff. You know, you're mm-hmm. dealing with very, uh, very folk magic kind of tradition, especially in Vajrayana, you know, uh, Vajrayana traditions and then Southeast Asian traditions get really like, they get really down into the dirt with it where you, you know, it's, it's pretty intense, but again, kind of following the same sort of things. Like we were, uh, the other day we were talking about the, that Thai magic stuff, you know, yeah. where the, the Thai practitioners are, are contacting spirits of the dead and using them. See, for various things, very similar to what you were talking about with the mommy. That's you know. that's weird because mm-hmm. of all the and all the things that I've looked through. I'm I'm very fascinated by other cultures' use of magic. So like Scandinavian magic, Nordic magic, um, you know, um, Russian magic. I don't really hear a lot about Asian cultures and their use of magic because I always thought it was. I just I just always assumed that well maybe this is this is an area where this is very much viewed as different. I know every culture has some form of magic because, again, it taps into something that, as you said before, there is no name for. So everybody did these kinds of things across all cultures, but I've never ran into any real, you know, magic practitioners in Asia or or Japanese or Chinese or Thailand and stuff. Oh, wow. Expensive. Oh, boy. You you haven't (laughs) seen, you got to watch, you need to watch uh, Kung Fu Zombie. That'll give you. A, it's a great introduction. It's a great introduction to Taoist magic. Seriously, it's got a great, wow. like, fantastic, like, introduction to Taoist magic. Plus, it's just a great, like, uh, uh, kung fu, like, action film. But yeah, no, I mean, magic is magic is extensive the world over, and especially you know in in Asian traditions, um, well, super extensive. I mean, you see the things about to, lighting you, incense and all these different kinds of things, but I always thought that was more of a religious practice and less of a magic practice. I know they're very into luck, which is why you have everything's named lucky this or lucky that. They're they're very extensively yeah. into luck and so forth. But maybe it's well, just because shui. I mean, think about like yeah, the exactly. Well, and it's funny, too, because it's, you know, again, with the grocery store grimoire kind of idea, like people go into these like Asian shops in the mall and, you know, it's got like the different Buddhas and all of that. And, you know, they're like, oh, this is a little Buddha statue or it's a lucky cat or whatever. But like the actual traditions that each of those little Buddha statues have a very specific meaning and purpose to what they're why they're carrying, what they're carrying, what they're doing. And those Buddhas are um, they're active Buddhas. You know, so they're not, um, they're different, uh, 
it's almost like Catholic saints kind of, you know, and the ability. And then there's obviously the tradition of the religious tradition, which is kind of separated off in the monastic tradition in that. But then there's the folk tradition of you get that specific Buddha statue to do something in your life, you know, to actually do it. And then you get that. Um, what what I love about the United States traditions is that it's such a melting pot where you can go to, uh, you know, a folk practitioner in uh, the South and they'll have a Buddha statue because it works, you know, and because mm -hmm. it's, it's been, it's been blended for a hundred years with the curio, uh, the curio magazines and that, but you can go to Mexico, right. And like Mexican uh, brujeria and they'll have Buddha statues because it works. Cause it's, it's that thing. You can go to the, you can go to East Africa. East Africa has a, sh a Shavite tradition where in some of the, uh, in Benin, some of the voodoo temples uh have uh shiva on them you know <laughs> and it's and it's because of it's because of this this conversation that's been going on through you know practitioners and that and the the shiva tradition in east africa is interesting because some of it is influenced by uh lw delorence's curio catalog which was sold to you know shipped to to east africa and so there's traditions in east africa that were influenced by uh turn of the century turn of the 20th century uh you know so, early 20th century publisher so what you're talking here is you're talking chaos folk magic at this point <laughs> yeah it's and it, you know it's it's what works you know the difference with chaos magic is that chaos magic comes out of a very like suburban urban concept of things it's very you know it it constantly like you have to have a basement sorry yeah. <laughs> 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 a parent's basement specifically. I don't know. Yeah. It's um, but um, yeah, it's a very like urban, suburban, textual kind of tradition. Whereas like the folk tradition, you know, like again, like with, with chickens and that, like, you know, if you're going to get a chicken foot to, to do, to, you know, create a talisman out of, um, I live in a farming community. It's not hard for me to go and like you know, get a chicken foot. You know, most you want a people, toe? I can get you a toe right yeah, now. I can have you, you know. a toe in five minutes. Yeah, exactly. You know. Nobody knows what I'm talking about right no. now, but uh, uh, the Big Lebowski. He's like, oh, I need a yeah, toe. That's right. yeah, that's <laughs> you need a toe? That's right. <laughs> you need a chicken foot? I can get you a chicken foot. I can get you a chicken foot in five minutes. <laughs> so so, David, when it comes to what well, I'm wondering, too, about like uh, like Buddhist statues showing up in exciting other places is it kind of seems to me like like um, I don't want to say, like Rogan, you were talking about the whole symbolism and the psychological aspect. If you are uh, trying to get yourself worked up to do something, um, it might be more, uh, let's say, intriguing or exciting to work with some uh, far off, exotic, mysterious yeah. entity rather than you know mary joe who grew up next door with you your entire life yeah well and it's it's kind of weird though because in some so when when you have a when you have an area that has trance possession going on mm -hmm. uh, stuff shows up so like in venezuela yeah. they have uh practitioners that work with eric the red the viking right this is in mm -hmm. venezuela and mm -hmm. so they'll go into a trance possession and suddenly they're eric the red Mm -hmm. And like, it's just cause Eric the red showed up, you know? So it's like this, it's this weird, um, when you start, when you start doing the work, like weird things show up and it kind of just resonates. But yeah, a lot of it does have that kind of like, uh, you know, orient orientalist mystique sort of, uh, exotica, mm -hmm. you know? And then, and I think that too, um, 
you know, how do these things, you know, these things kind of pass through like curiosity to some extent. So, you know, these things kind of, uh, it, it, it's, it's so varied. I don't know. It's, it's a weird folk magic is just so fascinating because it's so loose and yet it mm. has these kind of like guide rails that it, it sort of runs on, you know? Um, so, you know, the, the, the exotica factor is definitely there. Um, but then at the same time, like it starts to work, you know, and the other thing with the, the Buddhist stuff too, is that, um, in the 20th century, new thought was huge throughout the Americas. So, um, and it still is underlying, uh, kind of influence. So you can go to a botanica and you can get William Walker Atkinson, who's the guy who wrote the Kabbalion. You can get a, a Spanish copy of the Kabbalion easier than you could go to Barnes and Noble and pick up the Kabbalion. You know, so like. These influences, which we don't see as much in uh, the kind of, uh, you know, middle class United States living, um, mm -hmm. are available in other areas where uh, magical practice is more prevalent. You know? mm -hmm. So how is this um, folk magic tradition? Because we talked about like the kind of the oral tradition, um, people getting in contact with these discarnate entities and kind of springing up this way. But at the same time, it seems like there is a big market for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fast. So it's really fascinating. The We had talked, um, you know, the Rex, the uh, Miller's Rex Hall. Yeah. Uh, which was a big, um, it's it's on the, the Run Devil Run album. Um, okay. And it's this famous, uh, uh, you know, hoodoo shop and in Atlanta and it's since moved to a suburban strip mall, but it was, it was right by the Fulton County courts, um, right around the corner from the Fulton County courthouse. And mm -hmm. it, it's this major kind of institution of hoodoo. And one of the things that I found amazing, uh, was why well, I, I picked up the farmer's almanac because, um, and I started getting interested because I saw that they had um, not only were the classifieds filled with uh, root worker and, and conjure and, and stuff like that, but they actually had uh, a full page ad for the luckshop.com, which also advertises in the lottery dream books. And it's uh, a curio company that, spelled, that sells spiritual oils and mojo bags and uh, like fast cash money oil and lucky hand root and stuff like that. So it's like a, a conjure and, and root worker uh, mail order shop. And so um, what was really fascinating is that, so this is in the, the Farmer's Almanac, and it turns out, I just found this out recently, Miller's Rexall now sources all of their products from Luck Shop. It's the same mm -hmm. distributor. So, you know, if you go to Atlanta and you go to this famous, you know, uh, curio shop, it's, a, it's actually just a pharmacy that happens to sell magical goods as well. Um, but, you know, wow. you'll That'd get the weirdest thing to see for me. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it really, it's really, it's a, an odd experience because I didn't know what to expect when I went there. And I went there and it's literally just an urban pharmacy. I don't know how their new place is. I don't know if they've, they've, you know, flipped it more towards kind of like a, what they think a magic shop should be. But the original place was literally just in like an urban pharmacy. And except for, they also had like alligator feet and talismans and, um, you know, uh, the, Secret of the Psalms books and stuff like that. But then they, you know, they had like Colgate 
uh, toothpaste and, you know, regular pharmacy stuff too. Or you could get your, you know, you could get a mojo bag or, you know, different oils and that kind of stuff and uh, different powders and that. Um, but, but that, but really just that goes back to the history, though, doesn't it, of a lot of – I was reading about a lot of these old um, – uh, concerns that would uh, start to manufacture, you know, like oils and, yeah. and potions, candles. they would ha- often be uh, like black owned and they would be having um, an overlap with, uh, let's say, household cleaning products and or yeah. cosmetics, that type of stuff. Yeah. Right. So yeah. That's where it, that relationship comes from. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because they um, there was a market for it. And they basically, you know, who has the um, outside of like a a local person who's going to be able to source their own ingredients and make the stuff, the way to mass produce it, you've got to have the industrial capability to do that. And who has that? Well, Mm -hmm. it's going to be a cosmic company, right? It's going to be. So the people that were, were, you know, um, were manufacturing these goods, you know, or with the talismans in that, like. <clears throat> how do you uh, how do you mass produce talismans? You've got to have something that you know can the, the die cut or do whatever. You know you've got to have the molds and all the rest of it. So um, it were toy companies, right? Like it was a, it oh, uh-huh. a toy company that could do it. So you would have um, all they would have sidelines, and that's what's really fascinating about this luck shop is that the luck shop, you know, it sells all this hoodoo and uh, you know magic magical curios and that um but it's actually a candle shop up in chicago (laughs) that's run by greek orthodox people and they have they have their greek orthodox side which is completely unconnected to the luck shop side and they're no like it took me forever to dig up that they were connected at all um and i had to do a lot of like internet sleuthing and looking at uh ownership documents and stuff yeah um but yeah they're they're a totally above board greek orthodox candle shop that also uh has the production capabilities to sell the uh the magic curios you know that's really that's really fun just for me personally because um you know you were talking about rural areas and the whole idea of you know sacrificing and butchering animals um because uh, i grew up in just suburban you know san francisco bay area in the 70s and a very good friend of mine um joey his father stepfather was greek orthodox he was a contractor and he built all these kind of uh, very large opulent homes so they had this huge house out on the outskirts uh, of the hills there, but he was uh, from the countryside of Greece, and so every Easter he would get a lamb and slaughter it in the backyard there, and uh, yeah. and cook the eyeballs up uh, for Joey's mom <laughs> that way she liked. <laughs> so Joe would usually be like out and about, actually over at like the stud in San Francisco or something. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, so that's kind of interesting that there's these uh, these. Uh, overlaps there what struck me too when i was reading some of the hyatt is that um you have because these people just don't sell the objects they all come with instructions and there's a lot of books that will tell you how to perform all these different um rituals or or make these magics yeah and they're the 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 not not so much anymore because A lot of the publishers who publish the books are separate now from the people who produce the the <laughs> items and that. Um, it's more it's kind of diversified out. Um, but you know, for certain uh, 
companies back in like the 40s and 50s, they uh, maybe in the 30s a little bit, but more in the 40s and 50s, what they did was combine stuff. So like you would get um, the secret of the Psalms that I have um, is from it's actually a, a non it doesn't even have a barcode on it. It's just a totally like Uh-oh. a totally just a, you know, fake hand printed book. Yeah. You know, but it's, it's a version that comes from the, uh, uh what publisher was this? Um, crap. I can't remember the name of the publisher. It came from a specific publisher though. And as you, as you're looking through it, you notice that any item that needs, uh, uh, materia magica, and some that don't, they've shoved Materia Magica recommendations in them, and they happen to be the branded product that was also sold by the company that published the book. And so you would have these instances where the books were rewritten depending on what products were available. You know, So if it needed uh, temple incense or something like that, it would be a specific brand temple incense. Delorence, um, the Dolorance catalog kind of mastered this because the Dolorance catalog is like 500 pages in and of itself, um, where he completely like anything he published, he made sure that itself it was self-referential to other items in the catalog. <laughs> so, you know, if you it's bought no different book, than when you have like like Kraft coming out with a cookbook, and everything that they tell you to buy in that cookbook is products that they sell. Oh yeah. It's exactly yeah. that. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. that. And it comes out of the same, you know, it's amazing to see kind of the history of marketing through the lens of, of folk magic because it, you know, it is these these things. And it, there's, um, you know, the it goes back to the snake oil salesman kind of uh, motif. You know, the patent medicine dealers had to have a way to sell their patent medicines. You could go into town and just start talking you know, your patent medicine and this would heal you or whatever. But a lot of patent medicine uh, people would print up an almanac. And so everybody needed the almanac because they were planting stuff and they were doing whatever. And so you'd get this almanac and it would just have all the ads in it would be for the patent medicine a company that was producing the almanac. Um, and then when it came to what we think of as like contemporary entertainment and that, a lot of that ties back to these kind of like multi- tiered marketing attempts where a patent medicine guy would get a musician to come and the musician would come and would play the songs to get the people to come over and the patent medicine guy would sell in between songs or in between sets and so like bluegrass for instance a lot of the early bluegrass guys were were going around with patent medicine shows and so like you know ralph stanley and that and bill monroe would be playing for patent medicine guys um, to, to draw on a card and the patent medicine guy would sell me, you know, so it's all, it's all just, kind of, uh, it's all uh, marketing. Yeah, yeah no, that's fascinating. Kind of that's great. That's really muscle, interesting history. You know? yeah. So we an hour and a half now, we usually take people for an hour, but whatever it seems, uh, whenever you come on here, it always seems like we stretch these into long drawn out, uh, conversations and things. So, um, I guess we should probably wrap it up, but as always, when you're on here, um, where can people find you? Where can people find your blog? Uh, for God's sake, when are you just going to write a damn book? Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> be much easier, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, David, exactly. David uh, dot is my blog. Um, David B. Metcalf on Twitter and Liminal Analytics on Instagram. But if you 
go to my Instagram. It's mostly just pictures of uh, rural Georgia. So not as not, be forewarned. Yeah, be forewarned is mostly that. Or, There's nothing or, here. It's all just pictures of stuff, man. <laughs> yeah, I got some sweet pictures of cows in a field yesterday. Um, you know, so it's that kind of stuff. <laughs> Thank you for us. Ah, let's try this again. Thank you for coming on here as always and having this conversation with us. It's uh, yeah. This has definitely been something that I've been wanting to talk to you about for a long, long time. And I really didn't have anything ready to go when we sat down and recorded this. I was just kind of like, all right, let's just see where this happens to go. And uh, this has been a lot of fun. So, you know, um, sure. this has been a blast, man. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thank Steph, you. for recommending this. Oh, no, not at all. Thank you. So once again, the amazing Mr. David Metcalf, who really needs to have a book or a somewhere to, to go. He needs a book. He just does. He just needs to start writing books or something or get all his blogs together and put them on in book form or something like that. He needs to have something because he's got too much information and too much knowledge that well, I don't want to say is I going to waste. But, you know, I would think the best strategy would be for him to uh graph some pamphlets of his blog articles and he can hand them out on street corners. I, sure. <laughs> okay. That'll work, I guess. That'll, that'll definitely get him hanged and killed in Georgia in no time. So. Oh, no, no. Deep South then probably we, isn't Well, then we could, use, we could go to his grave and get all the... All the things yeah. we want with his uh, extra. Yeah. Hey, Dave, we're back again. We need a little bit more dirt. There's like a, there's like a two foot hole dirt above his, you know, above Girl his grave. quarters in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's and the family's like, all right, enough. We okay? Can can can, can you stop getting dirt for for your stuff? Well, Dave's not going to care. We know the guy. Yeah. Yeah. We're, he's our family. We know. Could you, could you please? This just big stop? old gaping hole there. Yeah. No, really, he's cool. I'll, I'll 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 summon him up right now, and he can tell you himself. Okay. <laughs> Just fill it back in. We'll give it a year. We'll come back and take more. We'll pay for it. I, I can oh, totally see Dave now. doing that as a spiritual advisor, too. Yeah, man, it's cool. Just go and get some dirt from my grave. <laughs> you, know, you know how he's laid back and cool and stuff? I could just totally see him doing that. Yeah, man, it's all right. It's cool. You know, you know, whatever. <laughs> he's such a laid back guy, though. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I don't know. Anyways. So, yeah, he's he's fun to talk to. I wonder, like, we, we need to put another another show together with him. The, it's like I was saying, like, most of my shows with a guest usually try to go – I try to go an hour or so or something like that. But, like, even when we were done talking to him, we still talked to him for another 20, 25 minutes or something like that. And it's the same as it was last time he was on the show. It was just like, ah, you know, we need, we need to record this stuff and put it out there. But, you know, it is what it is. So, yeah, yeah whatever. It's fun. So, um – what do you have in the works for next time we do something like this? Do you have is your brain already jarring and ticking away, or are you gonna take a are you gonna take a break here, a little sabbatical, and try to come up with something new? I don't know. I have to try and think of a, a fun talk. Of course, we got on the uh, topic of uh, spirit uh, spouses behind the scenes there, so that could be a little uh, scandalous. But I don't know. Might, might might not be to anyone's taste. But yeah, I'll have to think about it. There's got some, uh, you know, e Asian magic. Uh, we touched on that a little bit. Some of the, there's a lot of stuff in like Vajrayana and uh, Taoist magic. There's Taoist sex magic if you want to get into that. But yeah, we'll come up with some um, 
something fun and uh, do it again. I really look forward to it. It's, uh, he's uh, so knowledgeable about a bunch of different stuff. It's fun to just kind of pick his brain, which I feel kind of terrible about, but it, it doesn't stop me. So No, it's. I think that's why – I think he likes being here for that very reason because we do – you know, he doesn't really have a chance to talk about a lot of this stuff. I've heard him on other shows and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. but we kind of pull him in different directions and, you know, we have a lot of fun with him and I think he really enjoys it because if he didn't, he wouldn't come back. And on top of that, we wouldn't be having these conversations off the air with him and like in our chat box and stuff like that. We wouldn't be having these conversations with him if he wasn't into it. So plus in my experience, when people know this stuff, they like to talk about it. It's kind of like the whole purpose of why learn it if you're not going to do anything with it. You know, that's there's a lot of things that I'm like that with that too. And I've got friends that when they when they want to start knowing things, if I know about it, I'll sit down and I'll be like, "Listen, this is what I know." You know, and mm-hmm. you kind of enjoy educating educating people on it. So, you know, I don't think that'll be a big deal. I'm sure he'll come back. It's just a matter of what we're going to talk about with him and getting him tied down to be able to come on here. Plus, only mm-hmm. this time he was only briefly standing inside of a jet engine for a little bit. So. <laughs> That was weird. I don't know if I'm going to leave that in the show or not, or if I, I, by this point, I don't know if I did leave it in the show or not. That was really strange. He's like, I don't know what's going on right now. <laughs> yeah, it was weird, but what are you going to do? I mean, it was, yeah. but it was definitely uh, less, less cicada ridden. Yes, absolutely. Those so, are pretty intense last time. Um, since we're at the end here and you uh, are my sometimes co-host, where can people find you, your articles and what you do? Um, so I'm at uh, stephaniequick.home.blog. It's uh, Ghost Dog is a Mystery Box is my blog. And I'm also on Facebook at Stephanie Quick. I'm on Twitter at uh, Wander and Britches. And uh, yeah, that's mostly where I am. Um, if you go to my blog, I have links to you know all the different places you can find me there. And if you want to send me a, a email, then you can do that. I have my email address there as well. So that's pretty much where... I am online uh, in real life. I'm here in the seventh circle of hell. Yeah. <laughs> Persephone sitting the next to yep. Hades here. Yeah. Hopefully have hell has good wine though. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do. Although I'm sure it's, well, it's terrible because the uh, crush is coming up not too far out from now. And, uh, you know, getting all that smoke all over the grapes. They had some issues in 2017 with, you know, what people were going to think about how that affected the taste of the wine. So, now, we'll some see. just made it as smoked wine. I remember I remember quite a few companies just released it as its own special vineyard because the smoke added a different character to the flavor or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so. when you talk about terroir and the whole experience of the ecosystem coming into the bottle of, of wine and, and experiencing that, I mean, this is part of what makes this land uh, what it is. We've always had these fires. So I imagine mm-hmm. like 30, 40 years from now, or 50 years from now, they're going to be like looking for that maybe those particular years of the wine because it'll have a very distinct flavor that the other years didn't have specifically because of the fires and the environment and all of that kind of stuff, you know? No, it could be, yeah. So anyways, yeah. all right, stuff. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to wrap the show up here. We're going to call it good. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you again soon whenever you come up with another idea to record something. So folks, this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. Stuff, say whatever you want. Saying hello from hell, you guys all take care. Peace, folks. Bye-bye.
Thank you.